This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, the folks at Bella Catering are one of the best catering companies in the whole of Australia and especially in Sydney. But due to the coronavirus restrictions, those lovely folks led by Glenn and Maria are unfortunately struggling but we can help them and I want to help them with this show. So if you guys can and you like delicious things and you're in Australia and you're in Sydney and you're within about a 20K to 30K radius, which is pretty much the entire um, Sydney basin, if you want delicious food at a great price and you want it delivered to your house, bellacatering.com.au is where you need to go. Absolutely delicious stuff, family stuff, like, you know, huge, huge get-togethers that we're doing virtually and things like that. You want leftovers, you want that sort of thing, bam, bellacatering.com.au. Glenn is absolutely a deeply questionable individual. However, that should not be held against him. He has a lovely wife, he has a lovely family, and they've got great staff, and they are awesome. Now, on to the show. This is an excerpt from Watergate and the two lives of Mark Felt, roles as FBI official Deep Throat Clash. Recently identified as the secret Watergate source known as Deep Throat, Felt is the last and most mysterious of a colorful cast of characters who have captured the national imagination. Now 91 and in shaky health, the former FBI man joins a pantheon of Watergate figures ranging from HR Bob Haldeman and G. Gordon Liddy to John J. Sirica and Archibald Cox. Unlike many of the heroes and villains of the Watergate saga, Felt defies easy pigeonholing. Admirers, beginning with his family, have presented him as a courageous whistleblower. Detractors depict him as driven by overreaching personal ambition. Neither description captures the bravura, almost reckless performance of a man leading two very different lives. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is another uh, another wonderful member of the film Twitter slash international film community. Uh, he has an incredible series of bylines that are quite intimidating. Uh, New York Times, a playlist, Vulture, Flavorwire, Vice, Slate, was also on CNN's at the movies, but now is currently the editor-in-chief of Crooked Marquee, um, which is a very crooked new movie website that is online. And uh, also one of our lovely other guests... Um, Roxana Haddadi has also been a writer there as well, but it's kind of his, uh, his burden slash his, it was luckily that it was him, his great task of revisiting contagion at the beginning of the pandemic and sort of discussing it that had (laughs) basically everyone having a conversation about it. Uh, It's my distinct pleasure to welcome another guest, um, coming across, uh, the streams on one heat minute productions from increment vice over into all the president's minutes. Jason Bailey, welcome to all the President's Minutes, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you for having me, Blake. I really do appreciate it, man. So, I mean, look, talking about being on the front of a story before it happens, you've, you're <laughs> the guy who's like people are, before every before the worst crisis that we've seen in the in the world uh, happening and unfolding in front of us. Like you're revisiting Contagion because you see that it pops up in the US iTunes top ten months. It feels like ago now. So how does yes. that feel to be on the front of a story that is emerging on a wave that is cresting and 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 a guy that's in film in in, in film and culture writing that kind of is starting to break like this underlying panic that's happening right. with all of us. 
credit where due. That was actually that was my my vulture editor, who's wonderful, uh, Catherine Brooks. She actually had flagged that. She had noticed that coming across because I was at Sundance at the time. Yes. Um, I was just standing in a line at Sundance. So this is like January, I don't know, twenty eighth or something. Yes. And I get an email as I'm check. You know, you sort of frantically check your email when you're standing in line between screenings to see what you've missed. And she's like, "Do you have any thoughts on Contagion?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, Contagion rules. Why do you ask?" <laughs> you know. She's like, "Well." funny story so yeah so i ended up like carving out an afternoon when i didn't have screenings like sitting at a dining room table at a condo in park city <laughs> re-watching contagion and then like writing a piece about it um and uh you know sort of still even at that point it felt like a well this is sure a worst case scenario and i, I sure hope it doesn't happen like this in any other countries <laughs> um and then turning out no it's gonna happen exactly like that in this fucking country um <laughs> And sort of watching that movie come to life. So yes, yes, it's it's a strange time. It's a strange time to be a a film and culture writer, you know, because you're on one hand you're you're getting assignments and pitching things that are along those lines that are things like you know uh, how does what we're happening now relate to the media we're consuming and how what have we seen in movies that sort of prepared us for this? And then also you're trying to do a fair amount of just like okay, let's take our mind off, you know, what's Yes. What, what what can we just sort of use as escapism while we're trapped in our homes right now? Um, and so to that extent, you know, it's it's actually it's been I've, I've been very lucky that I had already sort of carved out a niche writing about streaming primarily. And uh, yeah. because that's what we're doing a lot of right now, you know, so that's that's <laughs> and, and, that's and been the everybody work. better get used to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. It's pretty like, much. It's like for, good. For, for those like yourself who are like, yeah, I'm kind of I'm 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 good. I'm yep. just going to keep, like, you know, flexing those muscles. And there's a yep. a couple of great Australian film writers that I've been following for a long time and who are friends who like are just streaming through and through. And I'm just like, yep, this is, you know, they're getting a lot more assignments right now, basically. Yeah. yeah no, I, today was the first day, like today I had, I was, I was the first time I've been caught up on all the writing and everything is sort of filed that I've, that I've been assigned or that I've been doing for Crooked Marquee since this thing happened like five weeks ago. So yeah. You know, it's it's you know, and it's, it's going to so be feast fucking for fam. crazy for you to say yeah. five weeks. Yeah, that five weeks has felt longer. like twenty five years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it really has. It really has. Yeah, so but I want to like I, in all seriousness, I'm not trying to wax your car here. I want to thank you for you know the 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 stuff you guys have been putting out. I I can only speak for myself. Like you know, I were also just listening to a lot of podcasts and the fact that you've got like four different great things going right now has actually really been welcome. And like, uh, as I've been going out on my, uh, on my weekly supply run, you know, I've had, I've had, I've had you in my ears. I was trying to catch up, you know, on this one to some extent. So I was prepared, but also, you know, listening to our, our, our mutual friend, Sean talk about uh, muddling through, um, yes. you know, it's, I, I seriously, the, you guys who are, who are creating things for us to occupy our minds with, we thank you. And I thank no. you. Cause it's, it's always fun to listen to, to, to everything you're up to. 
It's a thank you, mate. Look, it's it's a nice it's a nice escape for me, even producing and editing them. You know, I've been sure. I've had my head in Tra- Travis's voice for in- in- increment vice talking to great guests <laughs> like you on this show, um, and my best friend right now, Maria Lewis, and I are doing a mini series on Josie and the Pussycats, which has been yes. a scream, which has been yes. a scream because it's just like listen to nineties bangers. Um, I listened to Black Street the other day for that show, and I was like, <laughs> oh my god, how fucking awesome a Black Street! Seriously, oh my god, no, right- here's the thing. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to switch over to the other podcast, but Black Street is uh, prominently featured in one of my all time favorite movie dance sequences, oh my which God. is the um, "If You Love Me" nightclub sequence in Living Out Loud, which I yes. think is um, like I think that movie is a little masterpiece that no that that nobody saw when it came out, nobody talks about it anymore. But I think it's a wonderful, perfect little gem of a movie. But that sequence is one of those movies or one of those one of those scenes in a movie where I remember sitting in an almost empty theater opening weekend, and when the camera pulled back. And suddenly there was a formation and there was a choreographed line dance happening, (laughs) like getting goosebumps and almost moved to tears because like, holy, it's one of those moments. It's like, holy shit. Look what movies can do. Look what they can just do. Um, I'm sorry. Get, get, get some living out loud into your life in this, in this pandemic. This is, this is a good thing, but like, I've just been listening to black street for like weeks now. I'm like, God damn it. This is so, so good. It's, 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 that that's been a really nice thing as an editor occasionally it's just like when when people are talking about that and doing stuff like that it's really nice that people are consuming and enjoying it but also i'm i'm finding the nice escapist joy like yeah. i thought that this podcast all the president's minutes would be the more um the more contemporarily engaged thing sure and now it feels like almost a different it yeah. feels like a different planet to go to, and now it feels like more of a historical exercise, or or or, or a sort of an outmoded politic um, uh, <laughs> engine that we're going to sure. see uh, sure. beyond this thing. But it's nice, it's nice nonetheless to come back. But let's talk about this movie, and let's yes. talk about this scene because I was excited <laughs> to talk to you, and I was like. I've been, uh, unlike in One Heat Minute, there was sort of a few people who were like, oh, Blake, I'd really love to do this scene or I'd love to do this scene. Or, How's that going? And I tried to arrange that, but I've been assigning scenes. So when we were going to chatting about doing this, I was like, right. well, I've got Deep Throat coming up. So I might throw Jace into the wolves and just throw him into a Deep Throat scene. So here we are. We're oh. in the underground parking garage yes. with Hal Holbrook It's it's and we're with Redford. Tell me about your relationship with this movie, and, and particularly I'm keen, you know, to, to hear about any of your thoughts on, you know, uh, other paranoia thrillers that you've ever been into, or is that a genre that is, is sort of familiar for you? It is, and what, I mean, my history on the movie is sort of strange, because I saw it at a very young age. Um, I was maybe 11, I want to say, yes. when, I, when I saw it. That is early, and- though. It is early, partially because, at risk of getting too personal, um, my my parents were teen parents, um, and I was born in 1975, and they were 17. So a lot of the movies I saw when I was sort of becoming a young film fan were the movies my dad was showing me that were his favorites from, like, you know, when... I mean, almost anyone, you lock in on your favorite movies when you're like 17, 18, 19. Well, this is around the time I was born. So, you know, I'm eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And he's showing me jaws, jaws, (laughs) jaws. Jaws. (laughs) This could be, okay. 
This could be apocryphal, but my parents always told me that Jaws was the first movie I ever saw because I saw it in my mom's stomach. Oh, I, I was born in November of 75, obviously it came out that summer, and what they always told me was that the, the movie theater they went to required a doctor's note for a pregnant woman <laughs> to come in to see this movie because it was so terrifying. So they had That's to like bring great. a doctor's note. Uh, when I saw that, but yeah, so I'm eight, nine, ten, and I'm seeing like he's showing me Jaws and Harold and Maude and Annie Hall and Godfather one and two, and you know all of these sort of great films of the mid seventies, and so I've always had a real affection for that era because like that that was you know such a sort of key age, and and that, those were the movies that he loved, were you know the sort of new Hollywood era. So I saw it. Around that that time, I would say I was probably about 11 years old and I was so taken by it with no context at all. Like, I didn't know who any of these people were. Yes. I, I didn't know this story. I knew Nixon had resigned. Like, that was about all I knew at that age. <laughs> and so, weirdly, a lot of what I know about that era and about that history and about that story is stuff I first learned from this movie. Um, yes. And became kind of obsessed with it. And, you know, also, again, this is, you know, showing the age a bit because I'm 44. Um, in at that time, there's that's also w when you were at that age at that time, you had like a handful. You didn't have a, an endless streaming library. You had about, nice. you know. 20 to 40 movies maybe on tape in, in your home if you were well stocked and like a lot of them like those sort of three on one tape on SLP <laughs> mode taped off of HBO or whatever thing so that was you know all the president's men was one of our 40 or so movies so I watched it a lot I I revisited and re in it's in the very specific way that you and you do torture like, those tapes those old oh, long play and oh, short play God, tapes you yes. talk they 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 at Tracking the end is, yes <laughs> Yes, they at the end are not, the picture quality is is not yes. great. Yes, exactly. Um, and so you know, so I, I watched the movie a lot. I at about I don't know twelve or thirteen uh, at a library, a public library used book sale. I bought the you know the paper the trade paperback version of All the President's Men and read that cover to cover. And so this has always been a film that I've that I've responded to and that I've had this affection for and that I revisit like frequently. And that was one of the things that I, that I dug when you, and this has been a recurring theme through the podcast, but you and Bilga hit on it, like from jump, the idea that this is a comfort film, yes. um, even though it's a paranoid thriller, like even though it's a political <laughs> thriller, yeah. like it's just, it's, it I've does. It, it, there's no rhyme or reason as to why necessarily it's comforting, but it is deeply comforting. The only thing that I think it does speak to, and this is something that I've noticed in a lot of the films I see, I approach and, and feel that way about, is there is something deeply comforting about people doing their jobs well. Yes. Um, and about process. And it's, and it's I, clearly, I, I'm, you know, I'm not staking any great claim here. It's a very process-oriented movie. Um, in terms of 70s conspiracy thrillers, like, I have always had a love and an affection for that, era and the, you know the conversation is one of my favorite films of all time did i um uh, i i probably sort of didn't really connect those dots and, and start getting into that as as a genre until jfk 91 like i was 16 when jfk came out and that's a real yes. good age to just like swallow jfk uh, whole you know yeah and, and I, I i think i saw jfk a few years after it came out but i was i was a teenager like i was yeah. like 14 yeah. or 15 and once you right. hit if you hit a paranoia thriller like jfk 
Like Oliver Stone is like crack. Absolutely. <laughs> like, no, it's what a What is this? Yes. What is this? Yes, because he's that film is such a combination of like, you know, sort of like righteous indignation, a very teenage sort of like you can't trust the man and all of that spirit. But then it's also like it's so hyper kinetic and the, 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 the shooting and the cutting and all of the mixed media and all of that. Like, it's just it's very much a movie to 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 blow your mind at that age and to sort of make you a fan of that subgenre forever. Yes. All of that said astonishingly enough i somehow had not seen the parallax view until like three weeks ago like <laughs> again i was sort of prepping to come on and i was listening to old episodes and and listening to you and bilga talk about it and i was like it's just always been on my list it's just always been one i've meant to get around to and i don't know if i was waiting for like a revival screening to see it right or whatever whatever yes. but that was <laughs> when i made the sort of the quarantine catch-up list like that was at the top of it um and and it's and i'm glad that it was because it's such a clear you know as you've discussed at length such a yes. clear sort of uh road mark uh, you know on on pakula's way to making this movie um both in terms of theme and mood and style but also in terms of like how to put a matinee idol basically leading man into this kind of a story and make it work Yes. Um, so yeah, I love. Uh, yes, I've I've loved this film forever. I revisit it a, a few times a year. It's weirdly a movie I'll put on just in the background while I'm doing other things. Uh, and that and that is exactly that that portal. So I want to touch on two things that you said there. But that is what Presidents was for me during my one heat minute journey because mm. I couldn't keep. I was watching Heat so religiously as a pro as my process for preparation for each show and each guest and each discussion. Yeah. So I was like, I just need to put on something different. And I was putting presidents on in the background. Cause I'm like, Oh, you know, you, you know, when you've just, it especially happens with, with streaming libraries, whether it's your own like personal iTunes, Apple art library, or whether it's like uh, Netflix or whatever, is that it just became easy. Cause it was a, and it was at the yes. top of the list. <laughs> I would just go, Oh yeah, well why not just put presidents on? And I just totally. put it on and I'd just sit there and be doing other things, writing something. Like that. And then what I'd kept finding myself is I had to start turning it off because it kept yeah. grabbing me every yeah. single time. Yeah. And so then you go, Because oh, it's because it's actually a terrible background movie because it's all no. talk. It's all <laughs> names. It's all dates. Like you can't you uh, the same thing happens to me. Yeah, I'll be like, I'll just throw this on while I'm while I'm editing or whatever, whatever. It's like, no, I'm just watching this now. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like, yeah, you just well it, it, and then it's it's certain conversations that happen or certain things or or it's a bit of dialogue like there's a the Ken um, the Ken Clawson conversation, you know, I my something's happened to my wife. Like I I hear that conversation come up and you're just like, <laughs> All right, all right, yeah. I'm in. I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm into this yeah. movie. So so many so many scenes like that. But particularly right. the scene you're talking about. And I think one thing we haven't talked about as much yet, which I did want to touch on, mm -hmm. is the leading man as an everyman right. uh, and and Pakula having that ability already. Like, you know, when everyone's talking about Beatty at this time, he's just, he's shampoo Beatty. Yeah. You know, and uh, our mutual friend, Sean Burns, <laughs> likes to say, write about what you know. Yeah. <laughs> In reference to that movie. Yes. Yes. So if you haven't seen Shampoo, go watch Shampoo. And if you don't yeah. follow Sean, follow him, because that's kind of his whole sense of humor. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I, I think that that's not something we've touched on as much in that Beatty 
absolutely holds the camera like a leading man and enraptures you as a leading man as as this sort of haggard, you know, real kind of dirtbag journo in Parallax. But he does not have any of that seemingly. There's none of that showy, shiny leading man quality to him. But his magnetism is all still there in Parallax. And I feel like that's exactly the same ingredient that Redford looks at with Parallax and says, I want to translate that because if yep. I'm going to be in this movie, yeah. that I cannot be distractingly leading man. Yes, yes. No, that's that's 100% true. And I think, and you see him sort of on his way to it um, in another movie that I just recently by happenstance revisited for a piece for Crooked Marquis, which is Three Days of the Condor. Oh, which great just, movie. Yeah, which is on, uh, I think it's leaving Criterion before this will go up, but it's still on Prime, I believe. And if you haven't seen Condor, do. One of the things that, that is invaluable in, in that movie and in this one is that, and one of the things that I think is, you know, sort of admirable in terms of an actor's vanity is Redford is never afraid to let you see him thinking. Yes. And never afraid to appear weak in a scene when he doesn't know what he needs to learn. And both of these movies, because they are political conspiracy thrillers, require a great deal of that, of him being the sort of the audience surrogate who is learning the thing and trying to piece an elaborate conspiracy together. Yes. Um, and, and, and he always lets you in. There's, he's never shut off. Um, so I think that's key in terms of, of just him as an actor in, in this film and in that one. I think what's really intriguing about him as a uh, as a professional, uh, if you will, as a movie star, um, is the degree to which, and I'm sh- I know you've discussed this some, you, to, to which he's taking control of his career with a film yes. like this um, by producing and starring, and that you also see, and I think this again ties back to Condor in some ways, you know, he's just a beautiful man. I mean, he just is. <laughs> Yeah, and yes. but in in a weird way, he was he, his stardom coincided with an era where it's not that that was a liability, but for the first time, a, uh, he he was a, a lot of the most interesting roles that were being written and cast were not for conventionally attractive men or did not require yeah. that. You know that no. this is the this era, is the era of Rata Rizzo, number yes. one. This is the era of your Pacinos and your De Niro's and your Hoffman's and your Gene Hackman's and all of these guys who would never have been starring in movies before, you know, the mid the mid 60s, before the new Hollywood era, who at best would have been Peter Lorre type colorful supporting (laughs) actors. And but they're getting all the good roles. And you see him in Three Days of the Condor, like trying to like contort himself into one of those guys. He's like, no, he's weird. He's got glasses <laughs> and he rides a bike and he reads books. And it's like, okay, yeah, but he's still still Robert Redford and you know, you fucking get it. Um, so- Even in Presidents, he wears corduroy. Yes. And he, and he makes corduroy look better than any other human being has ever made yes, corduroy look exactly. in their life. Yes, but so, so and I think that, I've been this close during this quarantine to buying corduroy, Jason. You, you this gotta, close, you, I you got to keep resisting. You got to, you can't <laughs> let that resolve crumble. But you so hold it I, together. So what I think is really interesting is you know he yeah he buys this project this the rights to this he co-produces he 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 puts himself in the lead and then and I think this is very deliberate he casts one of these contemporary slash competitors 
one of these real actors, capital A, opposite himself and shows throughout the film that he can hold his own. Yes. It's a really interesting way of keeping yourself in that kind of group, um, which, again, I think he's very smart to do because he could have very easily done the way we were throughout the 70s. 100%. He could have kept doing conventional movie star, handsome leading man stuff, but he rightly recognized that those were not the interesting movies and those were not the interesting roles, and he figured out these clever little ways to to make himself a part of that scene. And I think that's really, really interesting. And it also could have had catastrophic consequences, right? Because you're oh, casting absolutely. Hoffman, who if is you, if, just yeah, crest, if, who is cresting. Yes. You're, yes. You've got a guy like Pacula who's also absolutely cresting. Like he's at the peak of his powers. He's being hired for that. Yep. You've got Willis who's like shooting the Pacinos and making the iconic stuff that's all happening. And you've got Goldman who has worked with him before, but, you know, you know, his offside and Newman was always the guy, although Paul Newman is staggeringly beautiful. He's not classically right. Robert Redford superhero beautiful. So right. it, it uh, this is the one of those crazy elements of it is like this could have gone catastrophically wrong. But what it does is just so shows yeah. it just shows that he's just he's ready for it. And he also knows that I, I think what you said is so powerful is when you know what your muscle is as the more beautiful actor that the camera feels like it gives you more freedom to think and to be wrong and for yeah. it to and for it to work yeah. um if you're a le- and and whereas Hoffman's you know putting constantly making Bernstein a very manic performance and then and then right. other times he, he he actually you know maybe perhaps because it's rubbing off on him and he's getting better and he's acquired the knowledge he, he allows himself to be glacial and not give too much away but yeah, yeah I think that that's a real yeah. that's a real talent and and in the scene that we're talking about the the two shot that we're watching Mm-hmm. Redford's face is exactly what you've described. This is a guy who who's piecing shit together. There's yep. no real clue what's going on yep. and is just learning. And and what's so again it's comforting and refreshing for us as consumers to go, well, you know, this beautiful man who is our avatar in this movie is also outwitted by this whole thing right now. He's not yes. there yet. Yes. And that's exactly. okay. Yeah. And the other thing that you said that I also think is key and then we'll actually talk about the scene is that I think you're 100% right that the also, when you're talking about a movie that's this dense and this has this much potential for boredom, it's also yes. very good to have a charismatic, beautiful movie star to hold our interest. <laughs> like in a, yes. on a very surface level, that's yes. just smart. You know, yes. if, if, if there's a chance that the audience isn't going to stay interested, at least give them a pretty man to look at. <laughs> and that, and that and is a perfect, that's a perfect way to go into this minute, which starts with not a traditionally beautiful man, Hal Holbrook's face. We're yes. at the 40th minute of this 1976 masterpiece, this staggering, weird piece of alchemy that Jason and I have been talking about. So let's get into the garage with Deep Throat. Jason and I are going to watch the scene along together and you guys are going to listen along and we're going to come back and talk about it. Gordon Liddy was fired by Mitchell because he wouldn't talk to the FBI. You'll hear more. Will he talk? I was at a party once and uh, Liddy put his hand over a candle and he kept it there. 
attempted right in the flame until his flesh was burned. Somebody said, what's the trick? And Letty said, the trick is not minding. The story is dry. All we've got are, are pieces. We can't seem to figure out what the puzzle is supposed to look like. John Mitchell resigns as the head of... There we are. There we are. Okay. So I want to, I want to uh, just as a side note, behind the curtain if you will for the listener yes. um when when blake hands you your minute when he gives you this just this time code <laughs> unless you know the movie by heart and to be clear i've seen this movie a lot of times but i don't know it by heart at least to the minute so you have this experience as a guest i'm sure some guests just go find their minute alone and they're sociopaths so we're not going to deal with them but me like i want to rewatch the whole movie anyways because we're going to you know obviously not talk about this minute whatever but you just have this moment where you're like waiting for your minute to come and you're wondering what it's going to be and where is it going to fall and is it going you know is it going to be some going to be something interesting you know and then just sort of and you're checking the putting up the little display <laughs> time you know and when i realized i was getting a deep throat scene i was i just like a, a little song of joy uh <laughs> left from my heart because it's like yes because i get to talk about gordon willis and i get to talk about what he does and i get to talk about how holbrook a little but i mostly i i am I, I want because i love what gordon willis does i love the journey that i imagine gordon willis taking in my head this is based purely on conjecture i love uh, let's let's go down okay. I don't, let's conject away okay because Gordon Willis was an artist, obviously. He's one of the marquee name cinematographers. He's one of the guys we think about when we talk about this era. He was an artist, but he was also a storyteller. And he would never sacrifice the authenticity of the narrative <coughs> for the sake of a pretty picture. So we think about the Godfather movies. We think about Manhattan. You know, We think about his sort of signature films, and we call him the Prince of Darkness and so forth. But this is a movie that spends most of its running time in very bright places. Yes. Um, and, you know, not just the big bright newsroom, but, you know, he's got all these outdoor interrogations and all these walk and talks and all this stuff. And he had to honor that aesthetic. He's like, these, these are brightly lit spaces. We have to brightly light most of the movie. So when I watch it, there's a real feeling to me like he said, okay, then I'm going to put all of my theatricality, <laughs> yes, all of my artisan energy, you know, all of my flourishes into this very small handful of like, what is, you know, three or four garage scenes. Yes. And he just fucking goes for it. He's got... He sh shoots the lots out. He's Absolutely. making a... He's, it's suddenly he's making a film noir, you know? He's got... <laughs> lights and shadow and he's got that dracula style shaft of light on holbrook's on eyes, eyes. Oh. uh you know and and but and then but then and this i love when the scene's over and they cut back to the newsroom you immediately have that contrast again to that blown out that sort of flat overhead lighting that fluorescent look and it's yes. so striking and it's and it's such a a beautiful visual cue that this is the thriller element of this political thriller. Yes. Um, and again, and it's there in how he shoots. It's also in this incredible sound design. You know, we got the the the, the sound of the footsteps as he approaches, and that's the the sound of that that beautiful flick of his cigarette lighter of that Zippo, 
as as Woodward is approaching that distant whistling that sort of stops their talking and then they go into the whisper. Um, it's just it, it, it's pure film noir. Um, it's, it's a subterranean world. It's yeah. so nice. You're like it, it, and when you look at it's funny. I I. I do look at these scenes in isolation when I'm talking about minute by minute, just in the pure preparation sense. But then I like right. to watch, um, you know, again, a behind the curtain thing. I watch sort of 10 minutes around it. Mm-hmm. And I love the feeling of, oh, there is this organic world outside, you know, the, the, and, and I think that a newsroom, that flat lighting, just like an office building, if you ever work in an office building or if you have a, goddamn fluorescent light in your in your office garage like i do um <laughs> it, it, time can pass without you knowing what the hell is going on outside you yeah. don't have a window and i think yeah. that there's like this timelessness that happens in in inside the post newsroom like every day is just midday like it's all the time yes. and what what's so cool then it kind of like becomes like a scandy noir like there's no right. it's all light of the upper yeah. newsroom and then when you actually go outside in washington it's like then gaining the ground of like well the beginning of the film you're outside and and in darkness people are doing dark things yep. and then there's a subterranean world that we're not aware of until we're in this garage yeah. and so yeah i i think that it's it's this movie is of contrasts and that that this scene is just such it, it, exactly as you said, it's like, oh yeah, well, okay. You give me a couple of flourishes. I'll do the Library of Congress. That's pretty sexy. Yeah, you know, some 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 wet down streets at an opera. Couldn't be more operatic coming into this into this sequence, and then this absolutely stunning shoot the lights out yes. like noir. It's it's gorgeous. Otto yeah. Preminger like yes. kind of style. <laughs> like let's <laughs> let's take this from. Yeah. This is no longer a Pacula. It's a Preminger, and it's just like, yes. absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, so I just I, I when I revisited the movie with that in mind, it was just like I just imagined him, you know, just sort of sitting over in the corner when he's doing these these full fluorescent newsroom scenes. Like, just you wait, just you wait till we get to the garage. Just you wait. I've never and, heard Gordon and, Willis speak. And, I have no idea where that voice came from. No, I, I like your version. It's funnier, and also I I, I, th- I like to think of like um, uh, Pecula and, and and Redford. Obviously, you know, both producers and and sort of auteuring this thing, co co authorship of this whole enterprise, and sort of talking to each other and go, "Come on, give him the garage." Yes, like you know. <laughs> No, we've got like, Gordon fucking Willis, guys. That, like this, that, like, like, we're making him light this goddamn office all day. Like, let's give him something. Maybe that was even part of the pitch. Maybe you know that was like a, it's like, look, you guys, you got to give me some. Um, look, there's these garage scenes. Why don't you just fucking go Alton in the garage scenes and then you know we'll write, light, light the rest of it like a regular movie. Okay, all right, fine. So yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, oh, I, lo- I love I love that all of that is happening in there. The things that um, the things that Holbrook is doing again, like only with his eyes and with his voice, like that's the you know mm. it's 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 a it's a it's a visual flourish to light him that way. But it's also like that's putting everything on the little bit of him that we can see and what we can hear. And luckily, how Holbrook had, I don't think this is controversial, one of the great voices in all of cinema. And uh, and I meant to look up the direct quote and I forgot. So I apologize. But there's something in Ebert's review, his original review of the movie, where he talks about how, how Holbrook approaches all of his dialogue with this sort of like. Uh, bemused resigned cynicism you know what I mean yeah. yes. that 
that he knows everything and he knows how hopeless everything is. Um, so the hand over the candle story is so key to that because all, you know, you can, if that's told by someone with the least bit of enthusiasm, it's not believable, No, but this does not strike you as a man who bullshits about anything. No. And, and, and also, and also it's like, God, he's telling a story about a guy who's clearly just a Lawrence of Arabia fan. Yes. Um, who's <laughs> gone a bit too crazy. But what is funny about it is that this guy doesn't think it's a party trick. This guy right. thinks he's, this guy is an, a, a, an extension yes. of, uh, of, of this entity that feels like it's untouchable and impregnable and, you know, and, and impervious to pain, impervious right. to fire. It's right. like even the light and the fire and that whole sequence is like, he'll hold it there and, and it's, it's not minding. It's yes. like he's, 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 it's, the trick it's is clear, not minding. The trick is not minding. He's just not minding. And so it's like that, it, it, the laissez faire of that whole crew to just do whatever they want yeah. is so perfectly enunciated in that. Right. I, I, but, I, I love that so much. Right. But it's also so key. And again, you know, we talked about the efficiency of the Goldman screenplay and how there, there is nothing that's there for no reason while never seeming like obvious broad stroke exposition. What he's also saying in that story by the fact that then what he goes into in the next minute, I'm not not trying to step on anyone's toes, <laughs> but it is one of the key quotes of the movie. The truth is they're not very bright, bright guys and things got out of hand is what he's what he's doing in 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 telling that story and in the juxtaposition of that memorable quote is. Goldman is making very clear exactly what these guys are up against, what Woodward and Bernstein are up against, which is not intelligence, but fierce, undying loyalty that they are going to have, that this is the primary barrier that they're dealing with, is that they are battling an enemy that is defined by loyalty. And that's why they're not going to get any of those doors open. Um, is is that the that this is how the president's men feel about the president and it's also that to a certain level like where they're scratching on the surface with a few folk and as they then get to the crete employees which is such a huge part of it it's like let's see if there is if there is a weakness because right now deep throat is like everything is about once you get to that certain level once you get to that circle it's, it's it impenetrable. Impossible. It's yeah. impenetrable. It is impossible to break through. And so in that, in that moment, that sort of blind loyalty is so fun because it's like right now we're getting it established. Like we're getting mm-hmm. it established right then and there that yep. this loyalty is not going to break. Right. <laughs> it's not right. going to break under any, it's not going to break under any circumstance. And so you've just got to hope that there is a thread that these guys, because they're not very bright, they haven't, they haven't covered something up. There's one, yes. There's one smoking gun. There's something out that they haven't done. And these employees of Crete are a huge part of that. No, it's it's so good though, uh, Jason. I think it's good. And I, I totally don't mind you stepping on the toes of the next minute because that's just the fun of this entire exercise is that 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 contrast, just like the contrast of this scene to the brightness is exactly what makes, I think, is, is, is part of the friction that creates the whole movie. They're A, not very bright because yep. from the very beginning, 
these idiots with their stupid gloves and their oversized suits, like they almost look like the 90s suits from The Last Dance. Like we're getting <laughs> right, there. We're, right. we're, they're, in, they're, they're in the early origin points of what will later be worn by Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. <laughs> they're later. But, yeah. but they're in these oversized stupid suits that were, la- you know, the actual history is, and you can hear it um, really, really great on um, uh, um, Leon Nafak's show, um, uh, it is when people are, going to a meal and eating lobster loudly in the hotel of the building that they're going to rob the day before. <laughs> they're not very bright guys, right? They're not, they're nope. not bright guys. And nope. so we know that, but that's what's so great is that they're brazen to a level and that, that that's how they'd gotten away with so much that right. because they're in that power, they're in that power yeah. dynamic and Nixon is this all-encompassing entity, they're allowed to do that. And that's yeah. what's the scary thing. It's the same sort of thing that people for so long, even Woodward himself, um, in fear uh, later on with the Trump administration, it's that, that whole thing of like, these people aren't very bright, but they're operating with such a, you know, a phenomenal power that yeah. they get away with not being bright brazenly. Yes. And then when nothing, when there are no consequences for obvious corruption, <laughs> yes. they're just going to keep on corrupting. Keep like, on keeping on. Why, why would you stop? Why would you stop? <laughs> ever. Literally ever. Anyway. Uh, so but it, yeah. But it's, a good, but it's a good, even in the lighting of both, again, the, uh, the, the, the artistry obviously is written all over Hal Holbrook because they're trying to keep his identity um you know at this time one assumes that they didn't even know who he deep throat was so they're right. still trying to light him with that mystery around in this lure of mystery but it's also just really great lighting on and and very practical lighting for redford because you get everything that you need from him yep. but he's not overlit he's not getting a showy contrasty thing that's making it sort of abstract it's it's making sense because he's standing on the other side of the pole and it's being lit side lit as um as willis likes he likes those side lighting things and he's being lit perfectly but you get to yep. see everything on him in that exchange too you get to yeah. see everything that he's doing because he's he's just like a like a baby deer who's just learning how to walk in that moment because once he's saying that stuff it's like oh well, this is what i've got yeah and 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 he's been coached into a system yeah this is how you're going to say something to me yeah and we're going to go back and forth and this is how it's going to work and if you don't like it that's it like yeah. that's the great i love that contrast you still get to see everything it's just so important for that contrasted perspective as well to see him learning in that mm-hmm. moment because that cynicism needs the 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 complete naivete on the other side exactly exactly and you know to to some extent the entire movie is about contrasts which is why yes. i think which i'm again i'm sure has been covered ground but you know in scene to scene person to person and then obviously in the central relationship you know the 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 newbie and the rook and the 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 guy who's been there forever you know the way that they're sort of giving and taking off of each other that all the movie is built on those contrasts those conflicts and then the the friction between them yes and it's man it's Man, it's so good to go, and this is where you know like a screenwriter of that caliber mm-hmm. is to go, we can't just, it's not just about a central conflict of characters, like these right. two leads. Right. It is every single contrast of characters in the whole movie, and it's really right. 
owning the personality and the growth of each of those characters and watching how they interact along the way. Because like, I don't think that Bernstein interacting with the bookkeeper, I don't think he's as good in that scene if he hasn't already been working with Woodward for months on this. Right. Like I just don't, because he's sort of, he's such a different thing from the absolutely, you know, um, Bernstein as sex machine flirtatious guy (laughs) on a rooftop um, (laughs) earlier on in the movie or that more manic sort of, you know, like pushing people around that bookkeeper scene. He is like everything that's like how that growth works, how the contrast work in the scenes and then how they contrast each other. And I love the inside baseball moment later where he's like, no, you interrupt me. So, okay, what I'm going to say is you're going to interrupt me. And you're going to say this. And what am I going to say? Well, are you going to bury it? And and, and we get halfway through them setting up their own system. So it's like systems within systems within contrast. And it's just really clever scene to scene because that takes, that's every actor being on the same page. That's the script being on the same page. And it's the director knowing and then the editing knowing like, have we got the contrast for this scene? Yes. And also, it's a screenwriter who's good enough to resolve those conflicts in action rather th- and and in relationship and in between dialogue rather than in dialogue um and when you and sean were talking about the scenes that it's great that are not there yes um you know the sort of the 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 uh, impatient girlfriend scene and all of that so the scene that i'm happiest is not there that would have been there in a million lesser versions of this movie is the scene at like the two thirds point where Bernstein kind of, you know, clasps Woodward's shoulder and says, Oh, it turns out you're a heck of a newsman after all. You know what I'm like? <laughs> we don't get that scene and thank God for it. And instead we just pick that up that the respect has developed a mutual respect is in place solely in the way they interact with each other and how they relate to each other when they're talking about a million other incidental things yes in the in the third act of the movie like that's how we know how that relationship has turned out and it's a perfect dramatic choice that is so often underutilized and it's also an actor collaboration choice that they're like we learned each other's lines so we could interrupt each other yes and you go, we can excise the dumb clapping scene because the alignment is literally you will interrupt me in the middle of my sentence yep. and I can interrupt you. And that yep. shows people you're on the same page. It's just like, it's, yes. it's so, it seems so obvious, but it's like, it's the same thing sometimes when you see a score that, you know, ha- rises or swells with a character movement and some people find it obvious oh, or whatever. God. And you feel like, you feel like it could be obvious or too gre- grating. And you're like, no, that's in that moment, that's, perfect that's just this thing that happens and it's so right for what they're doing that it's perfect and i think with these guys when you underscore that to people like no they're interrupting each other because they're aligned people go oh that that sounds stupid but in the context of the movie it's like no it's it's so functional and it's so great for both of them complimenting one another and it works for the story it's like and then you just go, man, God, this movie works on almost every conceivable level. <laughs> no, it does. <laughs> it does. 
it's like you know that thing was going around film twitter earlier this week that's like your five perfect films and this is on my list it's a perfect film it's 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 actually literally perfect there's not a thing i would change it's not a second too too long it's not a moment too short there's not a bad performance in it there's not a line of dialogue that rings false i believe every single person i believe everything that happens I yes just, i I'm, I'm just i'm in every time i watch it i'm in yeah, I, I did the same. I did the same thing, and I, I said, uh, uh, sorry, "Sorry, guys, if it's this obvious." <laughs> I was like, here's, 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 "Here's my five perfect movies: the first one, Heat; the second one, All the President's Men." Um, and, yeah. and, and so, it, it, I have my some others there, but I but I agree. It's like there's, I uh, I think that maybe that was one of the latent uh, impacts of Heat is when you when you watch movies and like it happens sometimes when you're a dad, uh, when you're watching a kid's movie, this thing, you know, a good kid's movie versus a bad kid's, kid's movie. Like something is played for you over and over again and yeah. must, must res And if it continues to resonate, it's like, yeah. wow, that is, that's perfection. You know, another movie that I think yeah. of, which is on a completely different tangent is something like I've had my kids watching Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I've had them watching it. I've, I've accomplished something. My daughter's nearly four. She really likes it. My son's starting yep. to get into Batman. So he, he's liking the Spider-Man too. And, and I'm like, God, God, the people who made this were really smart. God, they got yeah. that. God, they got it. Like, you know, it's not, yeah. d d not exclusive to a new Hollywood movie, but the same metrics of alchemy, of intention, of things being deliberate, mm -hmm. of things not being there that don't need to be there. It's all those things where you go, mm, yeah, this is actually pretty. Yep pretty damn masterful yep i agree jason bailey mate that is the perfect way i think for us to close this um in discussions of perfect movies and what makes them perfect i, I i'm i'm a huge <laughs> fan and i just want to thank you so much for being a part of the show um it's been a lot of fun thanks so much for chatting to me thank thank you for having me man when i heard you were doing this one i was like okay i'm getting in i'm, <laughs> I'm in I, I must all right I must. just when i thought i was out i'm in so yes. good, so good. <laughs> Thank you for having me, man. huge thank you to my guest jason bailey he was amazing he's a film critic all over the place you can find him at vulture new york times he is the editor-in-chief of the new movie publication crooked media so you can check that out he also has a number of books out two of them of note i want to shout out probably in particular relevance to this podcast pulp fiction the complete story of quentin tarantino's masterpiece and it's okay with me hollywood the 70s and the return of the private eye and more. Thank you, Jace, for being a part of the show. You can also find Jason on Twitter at, at Jason Dash, D-A-S-H Bailey. And you can find links to everything that he's doing on there. Thank you, Jace, again, finally for being a part of the show. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes. We have a brand new schedule for the show kicking off right now. So if you're listening to this episode, episode 40 with Jason Bailey, um, you'll just need to know that now every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, for the next coming months, you're going to have brand spanking new episodes of All the President's Minutes in your calendar in your schedule of listening we have a stack of other things happening on one heat minute productions as well every friday australian time a brand new show our seventh season on one heat minute productions is miami nice co-hosted by katie walsh where we go through michael mann's misunderstood masterpiece miami vice one topic one morsel at a time we go all over it it is both a listen along and a watch along podcast um, where we will occasionally 
drink along while we're talking about it. Um, so we'd love you to check that out. And also on Saturday's Australian time, but Friday's US time, we still have our amazing increment vice dropping every single week with host Travis Woods and an array of amazing and talented guests. So check that out. Get it in your ears. If you want to support the show, Patreon forward slash Blake Howard. That's where all of our One Heat Minute production support can be. But right now in this crazy time of COVID, we just love if you could share and recommend the show to anyone who you think would dig it. We have a whole stack of back catalog things. Nothing is behind a paywall. We have the whole One Heat Minute series. We have last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. We have contingent episodes, about 20 episodes going through and checking in on folks. Some of those will pop back up in the near future. And also Josie and the Podcats, a 12-episode limited series going through the 2001 satire of the music industry, Josie and the Pussycats, um, an episode at the time covering all the way from the inception of the characters through to the legacy of the 2001 film. A stack of great episodes hosted by Maria Lewis um, and produced by myself. So check that one out as well. But this has been another episode of One Eight Minute Productions. Thank you so much for listening again. And if you're still listening, what the hell are you doing? Go listen to the next episode.